Great. Well, we're reading from Romans chapter 3, and I found it on page 951 in my Bible. Don't know what it is for you. Um, Paul's been talking about God's wrath being revealed. Um, he's not ashamed of the gospel. Um, and I reckon we're going to get to a point where Jesus comes pretty often. Um, so he's made the point that Jews and Gentiles are alike, and he continues in that vein in chapter, in chapter 3, verse 9. Here we go. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the, the, the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues deceit, uh, practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. That is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you. My name is Gavin, and it's my joy and privilege to be on the ministry team here at Camden Valley Anglican Churches and to lead Gregory Hills Anglican Church. I've got to say that... Uh, Preaching this passage on the evil and wickedness of people in the midst of a global pandemic when we're all struggling and feeling pretty low kind of feels a bit like kicking a puppy or like stealing a kid's ice cream or maybe like pushing an old lady in a wheelchair out of the way to get some last packet of toilet paper. Um, it's universally true that people like to think themselves as basically good. And so we need to unpack that today. Um, and I want to assure you that Please hang in there because there is a wonderful grace in Paul's uh, three chapters worth of unpacking man's total depravity and our evil and our sinfulness. And we're going to get to that wonderful grace. We're going to touch on that wonderful grace uh, at the end of our sermon today and we're really going to dive in to that wonderful grace uh, next week as we move on in chapter three. Now, it is universally true that people think of themselves as basically good. Uh, we help old ladies across the street unless Woolworths is on the other side and we need a packet of toilet paper. We, uh, we pay our taxes, unless we can avoid them legally, of course. We think hardened criminals are bad and we're all basically pretty good. But that's not the testimony of Scripture. The testimony of Scripture is that the entire human race is evil and wicked. Uh, you've heard the saying, you've probably heard the song, bad to the bone, bad. You can see why Kate does a singing around here. Um, man does wrong things, says wrong things, and thinks wrong things, and consequently, man feels guilt at his wrongdoing. He doesn't like it, doesn't want to face it, doesn't want to eliminate it. So, so man tries to eliminate his feeling of guilt by adapting a more convenient kind of morality or by ignoring his crying conscience. Admittedly, we wish we could get rid of our guilt, but what is the true means to relieve us of the guilt that we feel for our wrongdoing? 
And more importantly than dealing with the guilt so that we can live with it, is the reality of future divine judgment as a result of our wickedness and wrongdoing. Guilt, in a sense, is that which we impose upon ourselves, and that's, nearly, that's not nearly so deadly as that which God will impose us on Judgment Day. Another word for our wrongdoing is sin. Sin is the attitude that sets man up as Lord and King and attempts to sideline God. Much to our surprise, though, sin produces a misery in this life and an infinite and eternal misery in the life to come. People try to deal with their guilt in many ways, alcohol, drugs, retail therapy, comfort acquisition. But in the end, it's very hard to avoid our guilt because according to Romans chapter 2, all human beings have a law written in their hearts, the law of God, written in the heart of every sinner. In addition to having that moral law written in our hearts, Romans chapter 2 says we also have a mechanism called the conscience And the conscience is activated when we violate that moral law that is written in our hearts and our conscience accuses us. It really is a gift from God, the conscience is, because it's a mechanism by which God warns us that we're living in violation of his law, which has consequences in this life and even more consequences in the life to come. We're guilty because we're sinful. We feel guilty because we should feel guilty and our conscience makes sure of it. We make life miserable for ourselves by our sin and we put ourselves, as it were, on the block of judgment before God because of our sin and yet we are left to ourselves unable to do anything to remedy the problem of our sin and our guilt. Sin penetrates and permeates every facet of our being. Our thinking is affected, our feelings are affected, our thoughts and words and deeds are impacted by our rebellion against God, by our sin. In the Reformed tradition, this is described as total depravity. Human beings are all totally depraved. Now, it's important to understand that total depravity does not mean utter depravity or complete depravity. Total depravity conjures up the idea that every human being is as bad as that person could possibly be. You might think of an arch fiend of history such as Adolf Hitler and say there was absolutely no redeeming virtue in the man. But I suspect there were some good qualities even about him. I suspect he had affection for his mother, for example. As wicked as Hitler was, we can still conceive of ways in which he could have actually been even more wicked than he was. So the idea of total and total depravity doesn't mean that all human beings are as wicked as they could possibly be. It means that the fall was so serious that it affects the whole of every person in a dramatic way. The fallenness that captures and grips our human nature affects our bodies, which is why we become ill and die. It affects our minds and our thinking. We still have the capacity to think, but the Bible says the mind has become darkened and weakened. The will of man is no longer in its pristine state of moral power. The will, according to the New Testament, is now in bondage. We're enslaved to the evil impulses and desires of our hearts. The body, the mind, the will, the spirit, indeed the whole person has been infected by the power of sin. In this part of Paul's letter, Paul exposes humanity in its wickedness. And just before we dive in to... uh, Our first point, I've remembered 
two things I neglected to tell you. One, there is an outline that you can follow along if you wish. And two, we'll be having a question time at the end of this sermon. So if you have any questions, please text them in to the phone number at the bottom of the screen. You probably figured that out already <clears throat> from the phone number being there. So we're up to point one in our outline, humanity on trial. Um, in the first two chapters of Romans, Paul has already exposed the blatant unrighteousness of much of the ancient Gentile world in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. In 2, 1 to 16, he exposed the hypocritical righteousness of moralizers. And we saw last week in Ben's sermon that he exposed the confident self-righteousness of Jewish people who boast of God's law but then break it. So here now, Paul arraigns the whole human race. I have to confess, I didn't know what arraigns means until this week. I suspect the solicitor at Gregory Hills Anglican Church knows very well what arraigns means. Arraigns means bring to court to stand trial. The whole human race is on trial, charged, verse 9, with being under the power of sin. All are under the power of sin. All are evil and wicked because of sin. Now in verse 9 there where it says, What then are we better than they? To whom does the we refer? Are we better than they? He's already talked about the Jews. He's already talked about the Gentiles. He said the Gentiles have the law of God written in their hearts. He said the Jews do have an advantage, much in every way. Chapter 3, verse 1. In fact, they have a great advantage uh, because to them were committed the oracles of God. Scripture. So they not only have the law of God written in their heart, but they also have the law of God in Scripture, in Scripture rated for them on paper. So he's already dealt with the Jews, he dealt with the Gentiles, who is the we? It must be somebody other than them or a distinct group. I think the best answer to who the we is, is Paul and his readers. Believers in Rome and his companions, that's the we. He uses we back in verse 8. We are slanderously reported, speaking of accusations that were used against him. So I think we is referring to Paul and his believers. And he's simply saying, because we're believers, because we're saved, because we belong to God, are we somehow better than the rest of the world? Is this reality that we enjoy called salvation a result of us being better than everybody else? That's what I think his argument is here. He's saying, because we're believers and are therefore, are we somehow therefore more worthy? Are we somehow better than those who are condemned? Are we different? Are we special? And the answer is very clear, no, not at all. We are not better, for we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles alike, that is, all people, are under sin. So the trial, verses 10 to 18. There are 13 counts against man here in these verses. Four times the word none is used, three times the word all is used. This is a comprehensive list, friends. No one escapes the indictment. And the list is a collection of Old Testament quotes Verse 11 is from Ecclesiastes, there's six different Psalms referenced, and verse 17 is from Isaiah. Paul is diligent in his use of the Old Testament Scriptures to demonstrate that the whole canon of Scripture attests to these truths. We saw this in Ben's sermon last week as well. Now, sadly, I don't have the time to unpack each verse in detail. I would like to. So please allow me to make three summary statements about this vehement appraisal of the hopeless human condition. Firstly, these verses declare the ungodliness of sin. Near the beginning comes the statement that there is no one who seeks God. At the end, 
There is no fear of God before their eyes, verse 18. Scripture identifies the essence of sin as ungodliness. God's complaint is that we do not really seek him at all, making his glory our supreme concern, Psalm 14.2. That we have not set him before us, Psalm 54.3. That there is no room for him in our thoughts, Psalm 10.4. And that we do not love him with all our power. At the root of man's problem of sin and unrighteousness is a practical atheism. Man does not fear God. All the evils, all the indictments against man that we see here rise out of the absence of the fear of God. Sin is the revolt of yourself against God. It's the dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. Sin is self-deification. The reckless determination to occupy the throne, which belongs to God alone. Secondly, the grouping of Old Testament verses teaches the pervasiveness of sin. Sin affects every part of our human constitution, every faculty and function, including our mind, our emotions, our sexuality, our conscience and our will. When you drop black dye into a glass of water, the entire contents turn black. The contents are still primarily water, not dye, but the dye penetrates every bit of the water so that it looks entirely like the dye. In verses 13 to 17, there is a deliberate listing of different parts of the body. Bear in mind the illustration as you consider that roughly two-thirds of your body is water. Look at the different body parts listed. Verse 13, their throats are open graves full of corruption and infection. Their tongues practice deceit instead of being dedicated to the truth. Their lips spread poison like snakes. Verse 14, their mouths are filled with bitter curses. Verse 15, their feet are swift in the pursuit of violence and scatter ruin and misery in their path. Verse 16, instead of walking in the way of peace. And verse 18, their eyes are looking in the wrong direction. They do not revere God. I wonder if you found yourself appearing in that list. I wonder if you appeared more than once, as I certainly did. The people of our church are not utterly depraved, far from it. The people of our church are wonderful, loving, kind and generous. I was talking to a mate from Harrington Park Anglican just yesterday who's experienced the love and generosity of his church family recently, profoundly. But friends, we're all totally depraved. Sin has penetrated every facet of our being, leaving none of it without corruption. Thirdly, the Old Testament quotations teach the universality of sin, both negatively and positively. Negatively, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. There is no one who does good, not even one. Positively, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. The repetition hammers home the point, doesn't it? Twice we're told that all have gone their own way. Four times no one is righteous. Twice that not even one is an exception. For to be righteous is to live in perfect conformity to God's law. And the best man, the noblest, the most learned, the most philanthropic, the greatest idealist, the greatest thinker, say what you like, there's never been a man nor woman who can stand up to the test of God's law. Drop your plumb line and no one is true to it. So then, what is the verdict? Here's the verdict, verse 19. Now we know, now we know 
that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable, or if you will, guilty before God. What's the verdict? Guilty. Guilty. The law of God is the standard, the perfect holy law of God. All people are under the law and that law finds them guilty. Do you know what the responsibility of a judge is in a courtroom? The judge brings to bear upon the person, sorry, the judge's responsibility is to bring to bear upon the person brought before his bench the force of the law. A judge has one responsibility, uphold the law. And that's exactly what happens. The whole human race is brought before the tribunal. The judge says, when measured against the holy law of God, all of you who are under that law have no defense so that every mouth may be stopped. What does that mean? What's missing in this trial? There's been no defense, has there? There's been all prosecution, but there's been no defense from humanity. And the reason there's no defense is there is no defense. Verse 20 says the reason we haven't got a defense is because by the works of the law, no flesh will be made righteous in his sight. All the law does is produce the knowledge of sin. It just reveals how sinful man is. There is no defense against our sin. So friends, how are you feeling out there right now? A bit like a kicked puppy? I wonder if those with young parents have had a perfect illustration of man's sinfulness right before their very eyes these past 20 minutes in their lounge room. I have beautiful children and I was home with them last week for a live stream church and man, it was, it was full on. It was uh, full on. Give me five more minutes, friends. I'm going to bring this all together. And this is a warm, fuzzy bit. So tune back in if you've tuned out with depression. Point two. What solutions does the world have to offer for our guilt and for our wickedness? Our world looks for salvation in the physical since it has abandoned the metaphysical, that is, abandoned God. We do our best to build a climate-controlled slice of heaven around us in our homes. If you're a tradie, you have the extra satisfaction of knowing you built much of it with your bare hands. So you're not wicked, you're resourceful. We do our best to attain the best possible physique, fitness or health. It's hard to see yourself as being wicked and evil when you look in the mirror and you feel great and you look terrific. I think a third solution, but not <laughs> there's many more, is we numb out the knowledge of our wickedness with addictions and with substance abuse. The most tragic solution to knowing you are wicked and knowing you can do nothing about it is suicide. The gospel holds out great hope, friends, to all these people most certainly to the one who feels deep hopelessness and helplessness in their state of guilt. There is an adequate solution, but I don't want to steal next week's sermon. The gospel is the good news there is an utterly adequate solution to our total depravity. As with Ben's sermon, if I was just to preach this passage, I must leave you in your depressed and totally depraved state. But I just can't do that, especially not this time. Life's, life's hard enough at the moment. Let me read the next one and a half verses and nick just a little tiny bit of John O's sermon for next week. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. 
the adequate solution to our total depravity is receiving Jesus' total and utter righteousness through faith in him and his death for sin and his resurrection to eternal life. The verdict is guilty. The punishment is death. But through faith, Jesus is the one who is led away down the Calvary Road to the cross in our place. Our life remains as his blood is spilled and his life is lost. Our rightful punishment is transferred to the one willing to receive death in our place in order to grant us life. Praise God. Three implications to finish. Firstly, friends, secularism has been found out. Secularism is the belief system that doesn't say religious belief is bad, it just says it's irrelevant and not required. Secularism seeks to protect freedom of religion, but decrees that Christian beliefs must not have any say in state affairs. Secularists believe that we have all the power, all the answers that we need without God. God is at best irrelevant and at worst non-existent. But with the coming of COVID-19, all of a sudden our world does not have all the answers that they thought they had. And for many, no hope is to be found unless God is found to be true. How can we make any sense out of what is happening in our world without an almighty God in control of it all and life eternal for his people? And the answer is we cannot. Secularism has been found out. The world does not have the answer. Secularism is not the answer. We need God. We need his forgiveness for our guilt. We need his offer of eternal life through faith in Jesus. Secondly, brothers and sisters, we have a rare and blessed opportunity for the gospel right now, but we need a wartime mentality. A wartime mentality brings what is most important to the fore and pushes what is least important to the edges. People need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ first and foremost. And events like COVID thrust people into asking questions and seeking answers to the big questions of life, and we need to be there ready to answer those questions. A friend from Gregory Hills Anglican was telling me of the awesome evangelistic opportunities he has had recently, which is great. We have a narrow window where many of the things that consume our time have been put on hold, and we have an opportunity to refocus on the things that matter the most. COVID-19 has helped us, friends. COVID-19 has helped us as Christians to remember what is important, our core principles, and to remember what is not. Sport is fun, but it's not that important. Learning musical instruments, shut your ears, Ben. Learning musical instruments is fun, but it's not that important. Going on holidays is fun, but they're not that important. Thank you, COVID-19, for taking those things away from us to remind us what is important. And more to the point, who is important? Those things stripped away, God remains. Ben said it this morning at the start of the first song. The Ancient of Days remains true and good and eternal and right and just and pure and holy. He remains. No matter what is happening in our world, the Ancient of Days remains. Faith in Jesus is important for all. Faith in Jesus is important for you who believe and certainly for you who are watching who do not yet believe. Our world is fragile and offers no solution to our guilt and resultant judgment, but God does offer to pay your punishment for you. Remember the root cause of our wickedness and evil is a practical atheism. We ignore God, we forget to honour and glorify God. 
Social isolation is an opportunity to get back to God in Bible reading and prayer as individuals, as married couples and as families. I don't know about you, but my wife and Lara and I have been watching more TV than usual. Too much. We're actually missing an opportunity to connect with God together. What a tragedy. I'm going to suggest to her this afternoon that we remedy the situation. Maybe you need to refocus too. Maybe you need to confess your sins and put your trust in Jesus afresh today. Maybe you need to confess your sins and put your trust in Jesus today for the very first time, friend. In him is real hope. In him is real salvation. In him is a genuine and adequate solution to your total depravity, to your sin, to your guilt, and to your impending judgment before God. We have real hope and a real salvation for totally depraved sinners like me and like you.